So uh, this is our last week in our current sermon series called Identity Crisis. And what we've been doing within this sermon series, Identity Crisis, if we, we've been answering the question of who am I? And it's a question that all of us have asked ourselves at some point in our lives, and maybe some of you are asking yourself that today. And we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, and what we've seen in the first three chapters is that Christians, those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, are chosen, holy, blameless children of God who've been adopted by God's love. We were also reminded that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That every person who's ever been born misses the mark of God's holy standard and we're by nature children of God's wrath. But God who is rich in mercy and grace in love made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace we have been saved through faith. We also learned last week that that God created within that, through faith and through grace, a new people, one that was no longer defined by, by ethnic barriers or socioeconomic classes, but there was only one people in Christ, and that people and that nation is the church. And the church is an organism that was created for the glory of God to spread his gospel and to worship and praise him. And last week we looked at a prayer that the Apostle Paul started in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. And he was praying, he says, I, I bow my knee before the Father, and he says, I, which I am a prisoner for you on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he's about to continue this prayer and something hits him. If you look at the text, there's actually a dash there and he has to tell them about it. And it's this beautiful truth that the gospel, the truth, the salvation of God, the people of God are no longer confined to the Jewish nation, which it was in the Old Testament. But now it has been opened up through the cross to all peoples. That the Gentiles too are included in the community of God and it is by faith in Jesus Christ that you have right relationship with the Father and that you can be part of God's family. And he was very excited to proclaim this truth. Well, today we're going to get to see the rest of the prayer the Apostle Paul started. So please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one somewhere around you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, take that as our gift. We want you to have God's Word. You just have to promise to read it at home. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's Word as well, just pull out your cell phones. Ephesians chapter 3. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be examining the prayer that the Apostle Paul started back in verse 1. In Ephesians 3.1, he says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he stops. You see the dash there. Well, that would be continued here in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able... To do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
What we see within this prayer is the Apostle Paul is coming to the church at Ephesus, and this letter would also be uh, given out to the other churches within this region as well. And he's coming to them, and the Apostle Paul is actually in prison. We see he reminded them of this in the previous verse, verse 13. He told them that he was a prisoner of Christ, and he said, do not lose heart because of that. He says, do not lose heart what I am suffering, which is for your glory. See, the Apostle Paul is in prison when he is writing this, and he's in pain, and he's in suffering. And the reality is that the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians, could have also been in pain and suffering and persecution because of living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be looking at this prayer, and what we're going to learn is what we do in those times where we lose heart. What we do in those times where it's hardest. What we do in those times where, where you're going through something in your life that you don't even want to wake up the next morning. What we do in those times where, where you look to the heavens and feel as if God's love is not there. What we do in those times where it is most difficult for us and we're facing that sorrow and pain and we just want to give up. And what we're going to learn within this prayer is when we are tempted to pray less, we must pray bigger. We have a plaque in our house that says, the best time to be praying is the time when you do not want to pray. The hardest time to pray is in the times of trials and tribulations. But we are called within this text to pray bigger. And the Apostle Paul shows us three ways that we can pray bigger through this text. First is that we pray to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What Paul does here is he reminds us of who God is in verses 14 and 15. And we see him say, for this reason. Now, as we read the Bible, we have to look at key phrases like this. We look at because of, or so that, or, or for this reason. And we ask the question, well, well, what reason is he talking about? Well, in order to understand that, you have to look before to the previous verses, as he has just explained, that the Gentiles are included into the family of God, and there is one new people. It is the church, and it actually says that that's the dwelling place of God. It's the place of God's worship. For that reason, he bows his knee before the Father. But he even points back further to the reason that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of the mercy and the grace of God. Because of that reason, he bows his knee before the Father. Now it's important to stop and see the posture which the Apostle Paul is praying. Because if you look at the Jewish culture which the Apostle Paul came from, especially Jewish leaders, they didn't bow to pray. The customary position to pray was actually standing up. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about how the Pharisees used to stand at the street corners and pray so that they'd be seen by others. But we see this posture of the Apostle Paul, and he's bowing his knee. Now, this is more than just a posture of prayer. This is what, he, what he's saying here is he bows his knee is that God is in ultimate control. What he's saying is that God is in control of all of these situations. He has just previously said that he is not a prisoner of Rome, which is where he was in prison. He has said that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He realizes that even his imprisonment is from God. 
Even his imprisonment is something that God planned out and that God has control over. One of the most important things when we are facing struggles and trials in our lives is to realize that God is still in control. It's to realize that this did not surprise God. It's to realize that God is working in and through this. And he will work out all of these things for our good and for his glory. Now, good isn't always the way that we want it to work out, and that's something that's hard to struggle with, and that's why we must be praying that God gives us his Holy Spirit to strengthen us. So first he reminds us of God's control, but then he goes on and he reminds us of God's character. He says, listen, God is the all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, King of kings and Lord of lords, who's in control of all things. All things work out according to the counsel of his will. But then he says the name of the one who is in control of all things. And he shows the character of this God. And that's one word. Father. Now that's an incredible image. To be able to call the King of Kings and Lord of Lords Father. To remember that the one we go to is not a tyrant or somebody because he who is control is going, to, is going to cause us pain and suffering and, and agony for no purpose. But to remember that we are his children. To remember that if you are in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that God is working something in our pain and in our suffering. And his character is that of Father. But it goes even further. It says, who, who is, he says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that's important to stop and look at that as well. See, when we see this, we see the Father is not only the one who we are praying to, but he is the one who names every family in heaven and on earth. If you think about this idea of naming, it actually shows that their existence and their sustenance relies upon God. He is the one who names all the nations. He is the one who names every family in on heaven and on earth, and every family in heaven and on earth relies on and must be sustained by our God. What he's saying is that ultimately God's the one who's in control. He is the Father, and the Father is the one who names us. The Father is the one who sustains us. He is the one by which we find our sustenance in. We must remember that in the times of hardest struggles and trials and pain, that God is the one that we can find our satisfaction and sustenance in. And, and he doesn't just ask this out of nothing. Look, he actually asks God to, 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 to do something out of his riches of his glory. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. What Paul is saying is that God has great richness that is so vast and so immeasurable that we cannot even imagine it. And what he's saying to God is he's asking him to strengthen his people out of those riches, the ones we could not even imagine that there is no end, that God would strengthen his people out of those riches. When we realize the riches and the resources that we have in Christ, we can pray bigger. When we realize who it is who we are praying to, that he is in control, and who his character is, that he is Father, and he is the one who can accomplish, we can pray bigger. 
And if we look at this, I, I think sometimes we get tempted in some of those times of, of trials and tribulations to rely on ourselves, to just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And if you think about that image, that's, that's a pretty hilarious image, thinking about somebody who is trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps over and over and over again. But we attempt to do that within our lives when struggles come in. We rely on us and not on God. But look at what is going on here. The Apostle Paul says that, that according to his riches of his glory, he may grant you. This is something that is given to us. He may grant you to be strengthened. Look at that, look at that, look at that verb there. It's not strengthen yourself. It's not you strengthen. Or it is that you would be strengthened. It has to be done by someone else. God is the one who strengthens. And so even in this prayer, we see that this Father is the one who strengthens in those times of pain and sorrow. And it's out of the riches of his glory that this comes. That you may be strengthened by Christ. And then it says where we're strengthened from. And two, it is in our inner being, our inner man. Now what is that talking about? Is that talking about a small being that lives inside of us? What is the inner man? What is the inner being? Well, if we look at this word, it actually is talking about the heart. But when we think of the heart in uh, American culture, we think of like Valentine's Day, which was Friday. Uh, for you guys who didn't uh, get that memo, you can make up for it today. Valentine's Day, hearts all over the place, and we think of pink, and we think of all those things. Or somebody who's an athlete who's really got heart, They're, they persevere. Or you think about the organ within our thoracic cavity that we have, the heart. But that's not the idea of heart that the Apostle Paul is, is talking about here, this inner man. If you look at the Hebrew idea of heart, it is the very core of who we are. It's our attitude, wills, actions, and desires. It's everything that we are. And the apostle is praying that God would strengthen them in that part of them, at the very core of who they are, because it is only there within everything that we are that we can be strengthened to face the struggles and the trials of our lives. He's praying that we would go to our very core and the identity of Christ would be who we are. Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. At our very core, Christ lives within us, and our inner being is his if you've surrendered your life to him. And this is a dense statement, and it challenges us for what we are praying for and what we are relying on for our strength. You know that one of the greatest realizations that we can have in hardships in our lives is that we do not have the strength to face it on our own. You don't have the strength to face it on our own. You may say in those hard times, I can't do it. And the reality is you can't do it. And when you come to that realization, you are at the best possible place that you can be at. It's the realization that I can't do it. But he can. He is the one who can strengthen you in your inner being in these times. So the first thing we have to remember when trials hit our lives is to pray to the Holy Spirit to strengthen us with a strength that is only granted to us. And it's a strength that we could never muster up on our own. 
but it is the strength that is gifted to us, and he will give it to us in those times. We must ask him for it, though. And we're not asking for just some power. We're asking for divine power, the power that spoke and stars shot out of his mouth. The power that created the heavens and the earth. The power who knows all things and controls all things. That's the strength we're asking for. So that's what we have to remember when we have those struggles and sorrows within our lives. We pray to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. But second, we pray for understanding to comprehend the love of Christ. Look at this amazing, amazing text. Some scholars have called this prayer the magnitudes of the love of God. Have you ever started to think that God doesn't love you in those times of trials? Read this text. Look at Ephesians 3.17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The second thing that we pray when we're tempted to lose heart is that God would allow us to realize how much he loves us. Isn't that incredible? That's so amazing. And he's writing to the church, and he tells them what they are established and rooted in. He uses this, uh, this analogy of, of roots, that they, that they are rooted in this love. And then he uses an analogy of architecture, that they are founded on this love. And what he's saying is that everything we are and the very core of who we are and our security is in the love of God, which surpasses knowledge, he says. And because this love surpasses knowledge, he actually has to pray that God would strengthen them to get it. We don't have the capacity to understand the love of God without being strengthened to understand it. That's mind-boggling. That's crazy to me. The vastness of the love of God. And he wants to give these dimensions. What is the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of Christ? He wants them to think about the largest things that may have known, the, the pyramids of Egypt, the, the mountains. That they would think about the sea. Stacy and I got a privilege a couple weeks ago through her job to be able to go on a cruise. And we were sitting out in the middle of the ocean. I remember looking out and there was no land anywhere in sight. And I just looked and I went, when does it end? Where does it go to? How could I ever describe the vastness of this? I think about the love of God being like the ocean. And it's something that, that's incredible because we can grasp the love of God. But we can always grasp more of the love of God. It's something that we can experience and know. But through the prayer uh, to, to the Father that, that he would open us to understand even more of that love, we, we step in deeper and deeper. Yet the love is, is unfathomable and it has no end and so we can experience it but we must have a conduit, the Holy Spirit, to really let us grasp it. And we're never going to fully understand it in our humanness. The way I think of it is if you go outside at nighttime and it's a beautiful, clear night. 
And you look up at the stars and you can see the stars and, and maybe you see some clouds and the beauty of the moon. And maybe if you're, you're near the North Pole, you, you can see the, the northern lights and you can see the beauty of the skies and the planets. And you look at it and you're in awe of what is there. And you say, wow, this is great, which it is. But in order to really even start to grasp that, you have to look through a telescope. And when you look at a telescope, you can start to see even further out and understand the, the beauty of the universe that it is. And that telescope allows you to start to grasp deeper this, this immensity and glory of the universe. But here's the reality. We still don't know the end of the universe. So even with that instrument, the, the thing that we have, the Hubble telescope that, that looks as far as it can, we cannot grasp the, the vastness of the universe in the same way. We can grasp the love of God to a certain extent within our being, but we can't even grasp it until we're with him in glory, and it's going to take eternity to understand it. Isn't that awesome? Now, remembering that in your struggles and trials, that this is a God who loves and cares for you. First Peter, uh, the apostle Peter is writing to the church and they're in struggles and suffering. He says, submit yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God, that's his sovereignty, that he may lift you up in due time by casting all your anxieties upon him, knowing that his concern is for you. That's the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And when we are in those trials and tribulations, we have to go, God, let me understand your love. Because our flesh just wants to shut down. Our flesh wants to turn away from God. Our flesh wants to hurt and be in pain. Our flesh wants to numb itself to any sort of love whatsoever. But in those times, we must realize the vastness of the love of God. That's the whole point of this, this, this prayer, is that we would understand God's love. If you're a Christian today, know how much God loves you. Know how much God's concern is for you. Know how great his love is. And this word for love is unconditional love. Know that. That word know is experiential knowing. It's this, it's this understanding to the very core of who we are. That you may know the love that surpasses knowledge. And something happens because of this love. This was so amazing to me as I studied this text. That we're, as we're grasping this love of God, something happens out of it. It says, that the text continues, it says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? Well, it's, it's his inexpressible power. It's his immeasurable love. It's his indescribable peace. Simply put, it's the fullness of everything that God is. That through understanding his love, like that is the key. The key is understanding the love of God that allows us to grasp his fullness. It actually says earlier in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, this about the church. And he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ. The church collective body of believers is the fullness of Christ. 
on earth. We are the ones who live out Jesus in the midst of our neighbors and our networks. We are the ones who are Christ to our world. We are the fullness of Christ. And the way that we truly understand that fullness is by grasping his love. And the only way we can grasp his love is by asking him to show us how. It's incredible. We can spend our whole lives searching out the love of God and never find an end to it. Spend our whole lives being filled to the fullness of God. But it says in Philippians that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. But the day your work is complete is that the day of Christ Jesus' return. God is going to continue to work in us and move through us. Woodside, we are the body of Christ to the earth. So if you claim the name Christian, live like Jesus. If you claim the name Christian, be a representative to your neighborhoods. Be a representative in your jobs. Be the one who prays for people in their hardest times. Be the one who, even if you're going through struggles in your life, you still say, I still love my God. I still have faith in my God because I know of who he is. I know that there was such great love that that even while I was still a sinner, even while I was still his enemy, he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for me, to take my sin upon himself, to take the wrath of God upon himself that I could be made righteous and holy and blameless before him. Because of love he did this. In love he adopted us into his family. It's all of this identity language within chapters 1 through 3 that come in now to this prayer. You have to remember all this. This is a letter. They've read it and they come to this prayer and they're going to be in awe of all this stuff that's just been said and now just remembering all that and then remembering that God's love is so vast. And it's incredible because this passage, this prayer is the hinge of this book. One through three is about our identity in Christ. And, and next week we're going to be starting a series called Community in Action, which is about living out of that identity. And the love of Christ at the center of it is the driving force of living out a holy life. It's loving to live for God. And realizing and remembering that his concern and his love is for us. I remember when Stacy and I were dating, um, Stacy was just such an incredible, incredible servant. And, and she loved me so well. And I, I remember that uh, she used to always want to do things for me and serve me. And, and I remember that I was a selfish individual and I didn't think about her very much. Now all that has changed just so you know on my end. But I remember one time in particular, this is etched into my memory. We were at her parents' house. We were watching a movie together, and, um, you know, she had offered to, to get me some food, and I, and I, had, uh, I had gone up to upstairs to, to get a drink of water, and I remember the day that I didn't think of myself, and I thought of her first. And, and it was when uh, I was up there, and I was getting myself a drink, and I wonder if she wants one as well. profound. (laughs) The reason I did that was because of her love for me, her care for me. I remembered that. God has served us over and over and over again. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we think about next week and we look at that, we have to remember that, that this, is the, this is the linchpin by which we serve and love God. We serve out of a desire, not a duty. 
We serve for a blessing, not a burden. And that's how it works in our life. One commentator writes, God's love is the wellspring from which believers are nourished and the foundation on which they find stability. Being rooted and established in love enables them to perceive love. From knowing love, they are filled with the fullness of God. Love is both the source and the goal. When Christ permeates people, they know they are rooted in his love. From the experience of love, they know they are transformed. True love transforms. And we have a love of Christ that will change our entire lives forever. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today you can know that love. You have to surrender your life to him and give up everything you are to him. Confess your sins before him and turn away from your old way of life and live for him. But there is a love there that surpasses all knowledge. And all of this prayer, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit, comprehending the love of God, it is all for one goal. It is for the glory of God. It is for God's glory. And so the third thing we pray is that God would get great glory. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The final way we pray bigger is to realize that it's not about us. Life is not about us. The cross is ultimately, it is about God sacrificing for us so that we would know him, but ultimately it is about the glory of God. It's remembering and realizing that our purpose in life is to worship and serve our God. And in the midst of struggles and sorrows, if we have that realization, it changes everything. If we think, if this gives God great glory, then it is hard, but I will go forward with it. Think about Jesus. On the night when he was going to be crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is, he is, he is going before the Father with so much stress that he is he's sweating blood. And he says to the Father, is there any other way, God? He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What he's saying if it makes you greater, if it makes your glory more magnified in all generations, even though I know this is going to cost me everything, and I have to have the very wrath of God poured out on me, I will do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the praying in the midst of these circumstances isn't ignoring them. It's realizing that there's pain and sorrow and agony, but then at the same time saying, God, take me out of this, or God, just show me what you're doing here. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you're getting glory through this, oh God, I want whatever you want. I desire whatever you desire. And he gets great glory. And look at what it says, how he gets that glory. It says, through the power at work within us. That's incredible. God gets glory through the Holy Spirit working through us, through the church. He doesn't have to use us, but he chooses to use us. And that is amazing. And we're reminded that our prayers are about the very glory and fame of God's name. And this happens in two places, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Peter O'Brien says, 
The church is the masterpiece of his grace, and its very existence brings God glory. The Father gets glory in the church, and he gets glory in Christ Jesus. So what do we do in those times when we're tempted to lose heart? What do we do in those times when the struggles of life continue to beat us down and we feel as if God's love isn't there anymore? What do we do in those times where we just want to give up? What do we want to do in these times when we just want to shut off our emotions and just go in a hole? Those dark places. What do we do? First, we pray to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we pray that God will let us understand his love. Third, we pray that no matter what happens, that he would get great glory. If our mindsets change to that, it changes absolutely everything. And we can pray bigger in those times. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, today can be the day where you turn to the one who gives all comfort and peace and rest. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, do not give up on pursuing our God. And one of the greatest ways to not focus on anxiety and fears and pain in our circumstances is to pray for others, is to think of others. So I want to challenge you in these times where we're thinking about the Easter season that's coming up very soon. Start asking God who in your neighborhood and who in your, your influences he wants you to start investing into a relationship with that you could invite on Easter Sunday. God does crazy stuff with unbelievers when they come to Easter Sunday, mostly because for a lot of unbelievers, it's the only time they come to church on Easter Sunday. It's the only time they come to church throughout the year. So be praying for that individual. And for those of you who are in sorrow and pain, remember who our God is. Remember the love that he has for you. Remember that he will get great glory. He will accomplish his purposes. He will move through your situation, even if it doesn't feel like it. He is there. He is with you. He is holding you. And he is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine through the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness, your goodness. We thank you, God, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we submit to you. I pray for those who are suffering today that they would remember your love, that you would strengthen them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, that your name would get great glory. And Lord Jesus, that you would use this church to break into this community, to break into our neighborhoods and our networks, and that people would come to know you as their Lord. God, you have done such great things. And we know that you move and you work through our sorrows and our pains but we believe, God, that there is so much more to come, Lord Jesus. So we ask you to move in Christ's name.